Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with best-selling author Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries, and she maintains a thriving private practice. Dr. Lemke recently appeared on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media in our lives. Her new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, was an instant New York Times bestseller. It explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine-overloaded world. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And we are talking today about your best-selling book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And it was a really super intriguing and interesting read. I enjoyed it greatly. Some of the concepts you talk about in here, I think, are very timely and important for people in general, and certainly for the patients that I see, and I know that you see, uh, it's very important to kind of understand some of these concepts for treatment. And to get into this, I'd like to just start first off by learning a little bit more about you, Anna. Tell us about your professional background, some of your personal interest in the subject matter, and kind of like how you came to have an interest in writing this book. Sure. Well, I'm a psychiatrist. I work here at Stanford University School of Medicine. I occupy the kind of classic three-legged stool of being an academic physician, which is to say I see patients, I teach, and I do research. Originally, when I went into psychiatry, I did not want to see patients with addiction, but what I discovered was that I was actually harming my patients out of my ignorance about, about addiction because so many of my patients were struggling with what we call dual diagnosis, which is to say when people have a psychiatric disorder and also have a co-occurring addiction disorder, addictive disorder. You know, I realized at some point, oh my goodness, I better figure out what's going on here. Of course, this was after I had graduated medical school and completed my psychiatry residency, where I had learned very little about addiction because although the DSM even back then had it as a diagnosis, there really was very little recognition or training um, of how to help patients with this disease. So it was a matter of trying to figure out how to do it and ask my patients and read on my own and go to conferences and learn from colleagues. But that's kind of how I got into this and discovered I really, I really love it. I love the population. I love the work when people get better. It not only improves their lives, but it improves the lives of everybody around them. Right. You have several interesting vignettes, stories of some of the patients in your book that kind of highlight some of the addictions that they were struggling in and this, I, this concept of overindulgence. So I thought that was really interesting. And I just want to mention, I know you're in Palo Alto teaching at Stanford, and I grew up in Palo Alto. And one thing that I thought was, I got a little chuckle when I was reading the book, was you were talking a bit about some of these delayed gratification studies that were done in Stanford, I think back in the 60s and maybe some in the 70s. And I was actually a child test subject for some of those studies. Oh, I remember I participating it. in them. Yeah. So I have a personal connection to some of that storyline. 
That's great. I'd love to, were you in the, you were in the Stanford marshmallow experiment? I seem to vaguely remember marshmallows. Um, <laughs> I do remember though, other types of things, robots that were trying to get me to press their nose. And <laughs> if I didn't press it, I would get to play with nicer toys and some of that stuff. I vaguely remember marshmallows. This was over at um, Bing Nursery School where right. um, I think they were probably um, getting some of their test subjects because that's yes. associated with Stanford. Yeah, that Bing Nursery School has ha was and still is the main feeding ground for uh, studying preschool kids. Yeah. So, Anna, let's talk a little bit first about the neurophysiology of the dopamine system and reward and punishment, pain and pleasure, because that's an important part in understanding this addiction work that you're talking about and overconsumption. So I'm wondering if you could give us just a brief primer on what dopamine is and why this is important to the system. Sure. So dopamine is a chemical we make in our brains. It's essential for the experience of pleasure, motivation, and reward. It's not the only chemical uh, involved in that process, but it's probably the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. So for example, you know, in rodent studies, if you put a probe in a rat's brain and measure dopamine levels, there's a baseline tonic constant level of dopamine firing. But then when the, when the rat does something that's reinforcing, like eats chocolate or has sex or uses cocaine, dopamine firing goes up. And so we know from that and many, many other experiments now that dopamine is essential for this experience of reward. When we get a release of dopamine, it feels good. It motivates us to want to do it again. And dopamine is also the molecule that goes wrong when people become addicted. You talk a little bit about anticipation of reward causing a spike in dopamine. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So in, in similar experiments to measure the levels of dopamine in a rat's brain, uh, one very interesting series of experiments looked at what happens when the rat is trained to know that when it hears a bell or sees a light, if it goes then over to a lever and presses that lever, it will get an injection of cocaine or methamphetamine or, or something like that. And, and what the uh, you know, exciting discovery was that, of course, once the animal gets the injection of cocaine, uh, there's a huge spike in dopamine. But there's also a little mini spike in dopamine just when the animal sees the bell or hears the bell or sees the light. So just anticipating the reward or knowing it's coming is a reward in and of itself. But here's the most important and I think uh, kind of exciting piece of this work is that right after the conditioned cue or the reminder, the light or the bell that tells us the reward is coming and the little spike of dopamine that we get from that, there's a little mini dopamine deficit state. That is to say that dopamine levels then drop below baseline which is essentially the state of craving, which then gives us the motivation to do the work, to go press the lever, to get the bigger reward. Interesting. So there's sort of a desire, the craving for the reward, and that in and of itself stimulates dopamine and maybe drives behavior toward rewarding objects. So I know when you talk about addiction, you also talk about tolerance or neuroadaptation. And I know that that's also an important concept when we're talking about overconsumption. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So one of the most exciting findings to me in neuroscience in the last 75 years or so is that the pleasure and pain are co-located. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure 
also process pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine that there's a beam on a central fulcrum, kind of like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, when we experience pleasure, it tips one way. When we, when we experience pain, it tips the other. Uh, but one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level, doesn't want to be deviated for very long to the side of pleasure or pain, so that with any deviation from neutrality, our brains will adapt to that change, that's neuroadaptation, and, and will do the work required to bring it level again. So for example, when we do something pleasurable, we get a little spike in dopamine, the balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But very quickly, our brain will adapt to increased dopamine by downregulating dopamine receptors and dopamine production, not just to baseline, but below baseline before going to the level position again. And I kind of imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the after effect, the hangover, the dopamine deficit state. But then they eventually hop off and balance is restored. Now here's the thing, and this is how we understand what's happening as people become addicted. With repeated exposures to the same or similar rewarding stimulus, we accumulate more and more gremlins on the pain side of the balance. And eventually we end up with enough gremlins to fill a whole room and they're camped out there. Right. Right. And that means that now we've changed our hedonic or joy set point, right? Now, when we're not using our drug, we're in a state of withdrawal. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. And those can last for weeks to months, which explains why people with severe addiction will relapse even after they've not been using for a long time, even after their lives are better, they get their, you know, their partners back, et cetera, et cetera. It's because they're walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain. The other really important thing that happens in addiction is that people develop tolerance, meaning that they need more and more of their drug and more potent forms of their drug to get the same effect. And now they're using not to get high, but just to get out of pain and to level that balance and feel normal again. Yeah. I thought that illustration of the gremlins on the seesaw was sort of a really interesting way of illustrating that. And so that makes a lot of sense so that when people start getting some kind of a reward and the rewards get bigger and bigger, the need to offset that by the pain that comes at the compensatory uh, reversal of that afterwards becomes bigger too. And so uh, you're saying that's where tolerance comes from and a desire to try to keep that balance there. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. And what we see now is that there are neuroimaging studies looking specifically at dopamine transmission in the reward pathway, the nucleus accumbens, for example, in, in the brain, and finding that even two weeks after people with severe addictions to drugs like methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, even two weeks after they've stopped using, their dopamine transmission in the nucleus accumbens is below normal levels. So this dopamine deficit state can persist for quite a long time, even when people are not using, right? Which I think is just really important. It explains uh, why people continually and compulsively go back to their drug, even after, you know, they don't want to, and even after it stopped being um, pleasant for them, it's, it's really just a way to stop, to stop feeling sick or stop feeling bad. Yeah. So that makes sense on it with definitely with substances that somebody might be consuming. Can you say a little bit about what this would mean for other types of addictions? 
behaviors that people engage in that they become well addicted to and have that hard time giving it up and going through the withdrawal? How, would, how does it work in behavioral types of addictions? Right. Well, I mean, I, I think it works almost exactly the same. We have plenty of evidence showing that when we're looking at digital drugs, that same reward pathway lights up, we get a release of dopamine. When we're eating sugar, it's the same thing. Um, engaging you know, in sexual behaviors, gambling, shopping, uh, social media, video games, it all lights up that same reward pathway, meaning that the brain will compensate for that increased dopamine by downregulating dopamine production and going into this dopamine deficit state, which is why I believe, you know, we're seeing increasing rates of depression and anxiety. It's because we are consuming so many of these uh, digital drugs that it's actually putting our brains into depression as a compensatory uh, mechanism. Um, and the natural history of the disease uh, or the natural history of addiction to behaviors like shopping, gambling, video games, social media is identical to the natural history or what we call phenomenology of addiction to substances, you know, drugs and alcohol. People usually start out for one of two reasons to have fun or to solve a problem. If it works, they'll continue uh, to go back to that drug over time as they go into that dopamine deficit state, they'll need more of the drug and or more potent forms of the drug to get the same effect. And pretty soon, once they enter addiction brain, they're using daily not to feel good, but just to feel normal when they're not using, they're experiencing aversive physical and psychological states. And they have a very narrowed focus on attention uh, on obtaining, using, hiding their drug and repeating once again uh, with every day. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's important. So basically what you're saying is with these behavioral types of addictions, it's the same mechanism with actual substances that people are consuming. It's a, it's a dopamine rush. And then people begin to crave that. And when it's not there, there's a withdrawal and then a desire to engage in that behavior again, to balance that seesaw out again. Yes, exactly. And I think it's really important to appreciate that when we're chasing dopamine, it's very hard to see true cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So when we're in this cycle, we don't see that our drug is making us feel worse in the long term. All we see is that in the moment that we use it, we feel better. And so we think, oh, okay, this drug makes me feel better. But really what the drug, all the drug is doing is getting you out of that dopamine deficit state, right? Temporarily um, counterbalancing the gremlins on the pain side to giving you, to give you a little bit of reprieve uh, when in fact, um, you know, the gremlins are there in the first place to compensate for the, the huge amounts of dopamine released by that drug. You spend quite a bit of time in your book talking about sort of the general societal concept of overconsumption, especially in modern history. And I wonder if you could say a bit about that. Why are we experiencing as a society and a civilization overconsumption? Where is it coming from? Why is this sort of creating a, a social societal problem now? Well, it's a combination of a number of different um, influences. The first is technology and what mm -hmm. technology has allowed us to do in terms of creating these drugs faster. For example, the cigarette rolling machine that was invented in the 1880s to go from producing four cigarettes a minute to 20,000 cigarettes a minute. Today, that number is even greater. Um, the potency technology has allowed increased potency of these drugs 
Uh, if you follow the history of opioids, you can see that, you know, writ large uh, opioids originally could only be obtained uh, from the poppy plant. You had to extract opium. It was a labor intensive process. You had to have fields uh, to plant the poppies. Uh, you had to water them. You had to harvest them. Uh, but what happened over time is that we have come up with more and more uh, ingenious and fast ways of obtaining ever more potent forms. Um, morphine was um, sort of extracted from opium in the early 1800s. The hypodermic syringe to deliver it right to our bloodstream was invented in the 1850s, uh, leading to a very serious opioid epidemic especially among Civil War soldiers in the end of, you know, at the end of the 1800s. And then um, heroin was invented. Heroin is morphine plus two acetyl groups. Heroin was supposed to be the non-addictive alternative to morphine. You know how that went. And then on and on up until the present day where now we have fentanyl. Fentanyl, you don't even need an opium uh, precursor. It can be made in the laboratory pharmaceutical companies make literally make these fentanyl lollipops. So there are just many, many examples of the ways in which technology has allowed for um, a larger quantity, more potency, and then of course, increased access to the supply chain. Uh, so all of that has been a huge factor. And then the other, the other big social factors has, have been time and money. We have more disposable income that at any than at any time in human history, including among the poorest, the poorest of the poor, who have more access to luxury goods than at any time prior. I mean, we also have more time. So we have more money, we have more time, we live longer, and we have more leisure time on any given day. Um, and that's only increasing, right? Uh, we now live longer than we have, and uh, we have more leisure time than we did 50 years ago. We'll have twice as much leisure time 50 years from now. Yeah, you make some arguments in the book that are pretty interesting and intriguing about, I think, the way sort of psychologically society is going in this direction of not wanting to experience pain, trying to avoid boredom, avoid something that's unpleasant. You even talk about the sort of general idea that there's sort of a idea these days that parents don't want to see their kids suffer at all. They'll do everything they can to make sure that they feel okay, that everything's okay, that the idea that they might be bored or sad or anxious or something is bad for them. And I thought that was sort of interesting. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that concept. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is that as we've built literally technologically innovated a world in which we're insulated from pain and in which we have ever increasing access to different forms of pleasure. We've also kind of concocted this cultural narrative around that, that says that that's a good thing. Um, and that we should be insulated, insulated from pain, that if we experience pain in any form, something has gone terribly wrong and something is happening. Someone's not doing their job, so to speak. And that, you know, really that normal human existence should be one of sort of a 24 uh, seven euphoria. <laughs> and that's really become part of the, the weft and weave of how we think about life. But of course it couldn't be more wrong, right? Yeah. You know, we, I mean, the, the, the relentless pursuit of pleasure for its own sake doesn't actually lead to happiness. In fact, it leads to its opposite, the inability to experience pleasure at all because of our primitive wiring and the dopamine deficit state in our physiology. 
Um, but along with that, just, you know, it's also heavily affected the way that we parent, right? Thinking that we have to protect our kids from any little harm. If we don't, they're going to end up on the psychotherapist couch, you know, 10 years, 15 years later, struggling with some sort of trauma, like whatever you may think of that, it's a very modern concept. I mean, 150, 200 years ago, surgeons didn't even want to use the new invention of general anesthesia because they believed that pain during surgery was salutary. They believed that it boosted the immune response. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it uh, helped with healing, that there were spiritual benefits. You know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. What's fascinating today is that we're actually seeing studies showing that patients who are not exposed to opioids during surgery might actually have faster healing than people hmm. exposed to opioids, right? Mm -hmm. um, might actually have a more robust immune response because we know that opioids can suppress the immune response. So, but, but the change in medicine and in culture broadly has just been incredible, you know, in terms of how we conceptualize yeah. pain. Yeah. So that's sort of an interesting concept then. So the argument might go something like this, my child, or even an adult needs to experience boredom, sadness, letdowns from time to time, because in order for them to be able, if, if they can experience that and have those experiences, then they'll be more apt to be able to enjoy pleasurable things or happy things when they come. If you're not allowing them to experience any boredom or unhappiness or sadness, displeasure, then you're constantly pushing the dopamine end of things. And so they're not going to be able to tolerate any level of un unhappiness. And we've got a problem there. That's sort of the way I took that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I would say that, that, you know, in some ways the millennials, you know, that generation has been that grand experiment. And we're seeing a lot of these young folks who really do have difficulty tolerating what to, you know, a generation or two ago would have been, would have been considered pretty minor stressors. And yet these young people are, are kind of, you know, disintegrating in the face of what previously would have been conceptualized as minor stressors. Yeah. And it's not, and here's the thing, it's not really their fault, right? It's, it's physiology. It's that they literally have not built up the mental calluses uh, over the first two or, you know, plus decades of their lives to be able to withstand things so that they literally can't withstand them. Um, but, but indeed, you know, we need to kind of think about parenting differently um, and not conceptualize every hardship as a potential trauma, but rather as an opportunity uh, for resilience. Yeah. Let's talk about psychiatry just for a moment. So you're a psychiatrist. My yeah. wife's a psychiatrist. I know a lot of psychiatrists and I'm assuming you're a believer in psychiatric medications to some degree. But you talk about in your book, this other side of psychiatry and specifically psychiatric medications and this idea of fitting into not wanting to feel pain, boredom, unhappiness. And so I'm just wondering as a psychiatrist, where do psychiatric medications fit into this larger concept of overconsumption and the dopamine economy? Yeah. So I always like to start out by saying that I'm very grateful for the psychiatric medications that we have in our toolbox. I believe and have seen many instances firsthand when they have been life-saving for people. And yes, they, they have side effects and you know that's always a shame. Um, but for the severely mentally ill, I mean, just a radical 
opportunity to provide them quality of life that probably would not be possible without these medications. Mm-hmm. Having said that, uh, I do think that they're overprescribed. I think we use them too lightly in too many um, opportunities when some other kind of intervention would be more appropriate. I think we use doses that are too high for too long. And we certainly engage in a kind of a dangerous polypharmacy where we're you know, adding one drug on top of another mood stabilizer, antidepressant, anxiolytic, hypnotic, on and on. So, um, you know, that's clear that we have a healthcare system that, uh, that incentivizes pill prescribing. And, and that's, uh, I think now to the detriment of many people. Um, I, you know, what I sort of would hope for is that we could also have a space in our culture for people to just be sad, you know, for people to um, experience their lives as, you know, difficult or painful or, you know, distressing without jumping on that and immediately saying, well, you must have a mental condition. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a chemical imbalance and you have to take a pill. Um, especially when I think that the world we live in now really is like, makes us crazy. Um, and, you know, dopamine nation and the neuroscience of addiction is just probably one example of how that might happen. Yeah. I'm interested in another concept you talked about in the book, and I think you did it. You used a example with an experiment with rats to illustrate this. And it was an example of the rat who would help save another rat escaping from a, a bottle or some device that it was stuck in. Yeah. But if it was given opiates prior to seeing the rat, other rats stuck in it, it was less likely to help it. And you were illustrating a larger point there. And I thought that was sort of fascinating. Would you mind talking about that a bit? Yeah. Well, you described the experiment really well. This came out a couple of years ago and it was just like, it was almost like one of these experiments that could become a metaphor for a larger societal problem. But yes, essentially a a rat or a mouse who discovers another mouse trapped in a cage uh, will work very hard to free that mouse. But if that, the the mouse who would typically, who's, you know, free and would typically work to free uh, its mate is premedicated with with opioids, so heroin, Vicodin, Percocet, it it won't bother. It'll just sort of, you know, like stare off into space or do something else. It will leave the the other rat in the cage. And I I think that's really uh, speaks to something, you know, that's happening potentially on a societal level. So Anna, I wanted to ask you briefly to talk about one other aspect of addictions and this overconsumption. And I know my wife would really want me to ask you this question. She was looking forward to it. And it has to do with kids and adolescents these days and screen time, the use of social media. We all know that kids are like constantly on their phones and constantly watching things. And I wonder if you have any words of wisdom about this topic you're talking about and specifically around kids and adolescents and consumption of media. Yeah. So, I mean, gosh, words of wisdom. I don't know. As a parent myself of teens, you know, (laughs) we're all facing and struggling with this problem. Yeah. But I do think that if I had any advice, it would be that we open up the conversations with our children, openly acknowledging the ways in which this online content really is a drug. 
And we know it's a drug because no matter how much of it we get, we want more, right? Our desire is infinite. Our satiety is never fulfilled when it comes to TikTok and YouTube and Snapchat and Instagram and, and all of it, Twitter, uh, email, you know, trying to yeah. keep up with our email. So I think, I think we have to acknowledge that. And given that as a first principle, you know, then we have to say to ourselves, how do we want to integrate this drug into our lives, right? We've sort of made some kind of rules and norms around alcohol, for example, which is a legal um, and ubiquitous drug. We have made some norms around sugar consumption, which is a legal and really ubiquitous drug. Same thing with cannabis products by now in most states, certainly nicotine, another legal drug. So if we conceptualize this as a legal drug and we acknowledge that we have to use drugs in moderation, you know, in order to have a flourishing life um, and we acknowledge that openly with our kids, then we can together try to create some types of barriers or norms around use. And, and here's the thing about any drug, quantity and frequency matter. The more of the drug you use, the more potent forms of the drug, the more often you use it, the more likely you are to get caught in that vortex of compulsive overconsumption. And remember, you know, when we think about that pleasure pain balance, it's not to say that we're never going to press on the pleasure side. You know, that's, that's not human nature, right? We are right. creatures of desire, but we have to press on the pleasure side and be mindful of the gremlins and use in, in, in little, you know, in small enough quantities that we don't accumulate too many gremlins on the pain side of the balance and use with some time in between so that those gremlins can hop off the balance and homeostasis can be restored. Because if we don't take time in between, then what happens is we end up in that dopamine deficit state and we don't see it as it's happening. All we know is that other things lose their salience and all we want to do is use our drug. So I recommend things like a family digital Sabbath, right? Taking one day a week and not being on devices. And especially mm. with, you know, and, and I recommend that little kids in particular not have their own devices. So little kids, I mean, under the age of 10 or 11, you know, that we really limit their quantities because later we won't have the, the power to do that, right? Teenagers are going to do whatever they want to do, like mine did, right? Mm -hmm. We we lived in a kind of off the grid, sort of low tech environment, you know, when my kids were really little and we didn't even have Wi-Fi to the house. So when kids came home from school and we came home from work, it was like this little, you know, pre-1990s kind of environment. Mm. And it was great because we had a lot of family time, right? And our kids learned a lot of, learned to do a lot of things that didn't involve screens. But once my, once our kids became teenagers and could go and get their own screens, they all did. They bought their own phones. They paid for their own, you know, we didn't, and there was really nothing we could do about it or very little. Mm -hmm. except that we had laid a foundation, right? We had laid the groundwork for appreciating the dark side uh, of these digital products and giving them a lot of skills and a network for things that didn't involve screens. And I think, I think that's really key. Yeah. So you talk a bit about the concept of a dopamine fast 
and also about abstinence being important. But I'm assuming like this is much more the case with harmful substances. Obviously, you can't take a fast from life. I, you could if you wanted to become a monk or something or a nun. But I, it sounds like you're saying like in the, in the context of screen time or other kinds of behaviors that could be in excess, the fast or the abstinence might be just a period to reset and then try to come back to a level of consumption that's more, I guess, within normal limits and healthier. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, that the abstinence is enough time for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for a level balance to be restored, which is to say healthy dopamine firing so that we can take joy in other more modest rewards. And then the idea is, yeah, to how can we then reintegrate this drug back into our lives so that we can maintain that homeostasis with slight deviations, but not the kind of situation where we end up stuck over, uh, you know, with the gremlins camped out on the pain side of the balance. So, so that, that's really the key, but I would also say that there, if we find that we are, there are particular online products that we find once we start, we just can't stop. Those were things, those are things that we would then probably mm-hmm. want to you know, abstain from longer term. So yes, we can't take a break from digital devices because they're just part of our lives unless you go like join an Amish community or something. But yeah. I understand I understand Amish people now have phones too. Who knows? <laughs> but you can you can uh, eliminate certain categories, right? Just like people with food addiction can say, well, I'm not going to have cookies or, you know, I'm not going to have potato chips or whatever it is that there's their sort of food drug of choice. For me, like I can't watch YouTube videos of Dr. Pimple Popper. I have to really be careful. I can't, I cannot watch TikTok. Uh-huh. Once I start watching TikTok, I, I, re- I literally cannot stop. Mm-hmm. So things like that. That makes a lot of sense. So I, there's all sorts of things that kids can do online. They could be playing these online first person shooter games. That's just a constant dopamine rush all the time. And that's different than looking at Wikipedia pages and researching things. And so I think that's an important distinction for sure. Yeah. And I would say, even if, you know, your kid wants to play like a a vivid game like that, like a Fortnite or something, then think of it like the way you would think about ice cream, right? It's like, you wouldn't let your kid wake up and have ice cream three times a day, but you would let your kid have ice cream maybe after dinner or after their chores, or maybe a couple times a week or on a special occasion, I think that's how we have to think about it. You spend some time talking about this concept of radical honesty. Tell us why that's an important concept to this uh, subject that you're writing about. So this is something that I learned about from my patients. What I observed over time was that my patients who were in the best and most robust sustained recovery uh, in their addiction, from their addiction, um, were patients who had hit upon this kind of trick, which was that they couldn't lie about anything. Um, So of course they couldn't lie about drug use. So that held them accountable. Uh, But they also discovered that they couldn't lie about even simple things like what they had for breakfast or where they were with their friends. Because once they started on those simple, seemingly innocent lies, that would often get them to the bigger lies and then get them to a relapse. So I got really curious about that, um, about lying in general and humans tendency, uh, in the human tendency to do that. And it turns out that the average adult tells one to two lies per day. So we're all natural liars. 
And these are typically small lies that, you know, hide our sort of small selfish acts, not big deals, things we don't even probably notice or register unless we're really focusing on it and trying to tell the truth. But I would suggest, I suggest to readers that telling the truth, even about small things, might be a really good way to improve our lives. It can probably, you know, help us monitor our own compulsive overconsumption by keeping us accountable uh, to ourselves and others. It's also true that when we're brutally honest with the people that we love, that um, that really fosters intimacy and intimacy and human connection is a healthy alternative source of dopamine. Mm -hmm. um, that means that we don't have to grab for our drug because we're getting it through our relationships. Um, there's some neuroscience that suggests that active truth-telling, which is effortful, probably stimulates the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is that gray matter area of the brain right behind our foreheads that's so important to being able to delay gratification, make future plans, and also write our own stories. And then ultimately, as a psychiatrist, what I have learned over the years is that the way that we tell our stories has a big impact on our mental health. And if we're telling true stories, uh, we're much more likely to be healthy. And true stories almost always involve our admitting the ways that we've contributed to a problem, not just the ways in which other people have harmed us. So part of recovery is being really brutally honest with ourselves about our own foibles, character defects, um, and the things that we've done wrong as we're trying to understand our past. And then that becomes you know, a roadmap for our future and be, being able to make better choices. Yeah, toward the end of the book, you start making the argument and the case that it's important to immerse oneself in life and the world around oneself and to try to engage in, in the world and engage in life. And that in the end may be a whole lot more rewarding than the quick dopamine fix. Is that sort of along the lines of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you know, chasing dopamine is sort of the, the ultimate withdrawal from life, right? It's, it's this kind of trying to find non-being by escaping your body and your yeah. thoughts and, and the world that you live in and the, the life you've been given, the, the people surrounding you, the job you have. Um, so that the antidote to addiction is really its opposite. It's turning and facing those things and looking deeply enough into them that they become interesting again, right? That, that they become something that we want to embrace and then indeed embracing them and finding meaning and purpose through that process. Yeah, I remember you had highlighted the story of a young woman in the book. I think she might've been a college student, probably at Stanford, I'm guessing. Yes. And she was, she was engaged in overconsumption of something. It was probably media, I think. Yeah. But anyway, you gave her the assignment to not use media for a month or something. And she came back and reported to you that she was walking to class one day and she noticed that there were birds and there were trees and things around her that she had completely been oblivious to prior to that. And she found those to be pleasurable to notice them. Right, exactly. And we're all of us doing that, right? Constantly distracting ourselves from the, from the present moment. Uh, so afraid to just sort of sit with the quiet and have to 
tolerate the bubbling up of our own thoughts and, and feelings. But of course, you know, it is that connection with the ground of our being and the kind of great quiet that ultimately leads to a very deep kind of satisfaction. And also importantly, a sense of being tethered to the world, which I, I think so many people struggle with now, these feelings of irreality or derealization, you know, that they're not real, or the world's not real, kind of nihilism, nothing matters. And that's just a terrible feeling, right? Very anxiety yeah. feeling. So in order to get that feeling of being connected to the world again, we really have to allow ourselves to fully be in the present moment and, and to tolerate the distress that comes with it. You know, I think a lot of times people think about, or I used to think that, oh, if I could just be in the present moment and do it right, I would be levitating like Buddha or something. But the <laughs> truth is that really being in the present moment means tolerating the distress and the anxiety that comes comes with being present in that way, at least initially. Yeah. Anna, this has been super interesting. And I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts and hearing you speak about the subject matter on the dopamine nation and overconsumption. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with today? Well, I'm just sort of imagining you going back and talking to your wife and, and just sort of wondering if you're going to make any changes in your household. I'm always wondering that. Yeah, you know, we always talk about we have a 14 year old son and we're always talking about screen time and media time. And she loves your book. She was the one who said, you need to interview Anna Lemke about these subjects. And so it's, you know, it's an ongoing discussion. There's not like right. a good solution right. to, to this. But I think like what you said, just having the conversations within the family and making sure that the child understands what they're doing and the possible risks and rewards of the behavioral choices they make. Like that's just important to have some mindfulness and awareness of, I think. Yeah, it's a good place to start. And then, you know, if you wanted to take like a, you know, a tech-free vacation for a week where everybody would, you know, go away somewhere together and do something in nature, for example, but without a device, that, that in itself can be very, very instructive um, just as a way to see what happens in the mind as, as we go through the process initially of withdrawal and how distressing that is, but then kind of come out the other side. Anna, thanks so much for coming on the show. Keep up all the great work that you're doing over at Stanford and with the research. And we look forward to more awesome books to learn more about these subjects that you talk about. Well, thank you, Aaron. It's been my pleasure. And I'm glad we made the Palo Alto connection. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.